A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And I, I want to turn today to the uh, declining fortunes of the Harold Wilson government. Um, you, you can sort of divide Wilson's time in office from 1964 when uh, he uh, won a, a narrow uh, majority um to 1970 when he's uh, defeated by Ted Heath there's another election in 66 into sort of kind of waves of um uh, of sort of optimism um not quite the same sort of euphoria that one saw in 1997 when labor was I- I- elected a lot of the euphoria um, was was more manufactured than you think. The pictures of Tony Blair outside Downing Street, with kind of throngs of people cheering and saying, "Hooray, you've liberated from Margaret Thatcher." Most of those people apparently were Labour, the families and friends of Labour Party staffers. So, but there was there was a, a in 1997 a, a genuine uh, kind of relief that um, the Tories had been uh, defeated. Um, the uh, brutality, social brutalities of of, of Thatcherism, notwithstanding, um, the, one, the the Tory government simply got into a place of kind of on sort of necrotic kind of corruption, and um, uh, MPs being paid to answer questions from Mohammed Al Fayed and things like that, stuff with which now compared to the the kind of stratospheric levels of British corruption seems sort of relatively benign and playground but there, there you go but anyway Wilson in 64 um, makes much of his uh, of, of the Conservative Party's out of touch nature the kind of um, aristocratic backgrounds of the likes of Harold Macmillan and Alec Douglas Hume and um, 
presenting himself as kind of far more working class and down to earth, which in fact actually Wilson wasn't. Wilson was a kind of solid member of uh, the British middle classes and had was um, an economist and had um, had a, quite a, a a good career during uh, during the war uh, as a civil servant and um, uh, was far from being a the the, the kind of the, the plebeian character that he, he sort of pretended to be um you know famously a pipe smoker and a beer drinker and much of this is is kind of a, a part of his his performance but he there was a a sense in britain in the early 1960s of uh, egalitarianism you know it's a kind of a brief moment in the early 60s with um, sort of uh, playwrights like John Osborne and the uh, rise of working class actors and um, uh, you know Sean Connery and Michael Caine and people like that and um, obviously the things like the Beatles and the the idea that kind of the working classes and particularly the north of England was a place of kind of cultural vibrancy and agency uh, something that's, that's kind of rarely acknowledged um, and that, that this kind of egalitarianism, um, which were, would be paired with a sort of a kind of tech utopianism, this was the, the age of kind of um, atomic power and the, you know, the, the, the space race and things like that. And this would power a new modern Britain into the, the last part of the 20th century and perhaps even into the 21st. Wilson talked... Um, about this, this idea of kind of Britain, uh, the white heat of technology transforming Britain. Um, there is a, a Ministry of Technology that's established, and you have things during Wilson's era like kind of the the post office tower uh, and uh, the the development of of Concord. Though you know Concord's development uh, overlaps various kind of um, Labour and Tory governments. But there was a, a a belief that kind of science was uh, Britain's future, which is you know fair to say that it, in in some ways it, it is Britain's future. Britain is a, a kind of a, a even at its lowest points in the twentieth century a science and technology leader uh, in, in almost every field. But by the end of the the kind of the Wilson administration, many of these hopes had not being realised and there is a kind of a, almost like a profound sense of disappointment in um, what, what Wilson had, had done and, and, and not done um, and the the second part of the, the, the Wilson story I mean obviously Wilson comes back uh, in uh, 1974 briefly until uh, 76 um, a very kind of much diminished character but the second part of the first period of um, Harold Wilson's government is you know, the period 68 to 70 which is a period of, of, of decline and that's what we're going to look at today in uh, Kenneth O. Morgan's amazing book The People's Peace. If you're looking for a book about post-war Britain um, get this book The People's Peace. It's, it's kind of one of those, those classics of the genre um, anyway, Kenneth O. Morgan writes, In the aftermath of the devaluation of the pound, the Labour government of Harold Wilson, and Wilson entered upon a grim period of deflation and austerity. In some ways it resembled the phase of retrenchment that followed the departure of Hugh Dalton in November 1947, when Sir Stafford's Cripps imposed a stern and Spartan regime of rationing and controls. Okay, let's de 
sort of unpack that a little bit. The devaluation. Britain was becoming significantly less uh, economically competitive in the 1960s. Its large overseas presence, its state sector, its um, welfare state, and uh, would perhaps have been sustainable or more sustainable had it not been for Britain's culture of short-termism and industrial um, kind of low levels of, of reinvestment. Um, and its gradual increasing number of days lost to strike action. Now we'll come on to strike action in, in, a, in a little bit. And much of what happens in the 1970s within industrial disputes um, could perhaps have been prevented by Wilson in 68 and 69. But um, um, but we'll we, we should explore that. So. Britain is finding it harder and harder in the 60s to pay its own bills and to pay its own way and becoming less and less of an attractive place for people to, uh, overseas companies to want to invest. Um, the currency controls that were removed in the late 1940s mean that there is the possibility of capital flight from Great Britain. This is one of the things that kind of ends Britain's great power status. In um, So... Wilson puts off a devaluation of the pound, which was the, his only kind of route out of his problems. He puts it off three times, then finally it becomes unavoidable. Wilson has to devalue, um, and has to devalue um, in a kind of the, one of the, the sort of the, the, the most brutal ways in uh, nineteen sixty seven. Um, the devaluation in 1967 um, uh, meant that kind of an, an awful lot of the spending plans that Wilson had, and an awful uh, lot of the um, uh, an awful lot of the kind of the the energy and the ambition of the Wilson government is, is uh, swept away. And so, what you have between 68 and 70 is a period of austerity. And periods of austerity under Labour governments in Britain are always particularly resented by Labour Party members, by ordinary people who assume that the kind of the, the economic cruelties inflicted on the British people are that's really the, the job of the Tories. And it kind of is, but Labour Party politicians wanting to present themselves as kind of having um, economic credentials and prudency and all the sorts of stuff that uh, their newspaper uh, critics admire um, often have to grab and uh, implement austerity itself. The economic leader this time was a very different personality. Roy Jenkins, the son of a South Wales miners agent who had progressed through Balliol uh, and being Atlee's private secretary to create a public image of confidence, competence and sociability. Jenkins, indeed, in many ways, seemed an unlikely spokesman for what, promised as two, uh, what he promised as two hard years of slog. In time, his image of fastidious superiority an alleged taste for fine claret became the butt of journalists and clubland wits. He ended up as Chancellor of Oxford University, but Jenkins was also a tough operator who had been a striking success at that traditional graveyard of reputations, the Home Office, where his liberal policies and attack on censorship and repression chimed with the prevailing tolerant mood. He also had, uh, he, he had also deepened his knowledge of political affairs 
um, through writing some notable works on political history, including the studies of Charles Dilke, Asquith, and the crisis between the Liberal government and the House of Lords in 1909 to 1911. Indeed, the temperamental affinity between the ex-Gateskillite Labour right and the Asquithian Liberals of a former era was noted. Roy Jenkins, in his kind of last act in uh, in his sort of political life, uh, formed in the early 1980s, uh, along with Shirley Williams, um, the SDP, um, the Social Democratic Party. And this was essentially kind of like a right offshoot of the, the Labour Party, which had then moved to the left under Michael Foote. And um, it was a, it, it began uh, with kind of wild popularity. Most British people um, were not radical supporters in the early 1980s of Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher's government, in fact, or Margaret Thatcher by 1983, um, before the well, before the Falklands conflict, was one of the most unpopular British prime ministers that the country had ever had. However, they, um, uh, the, the Labour Party under Michael Foote also um, struggled to be electorally successful um, and um, the, uh, the belief that, that Jenkins had, who's kind of on the right of the Labour Party and had an affinity with kind of the, uh, the Liberals, was that um, the, 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 there's a kind of like a division of, um, the, of, the, of the Labour vote would uh, ultimately defeat um, the left of the Labour Party. This is a essentially a, 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 a tried and tested strategy um, that was um, recycled during the Corbyn era. Roy Jenkins um, was responsible in many ways for Margaret Thatcher's victory in 1983. Um, above all, Jenkins was a gifted and skillful economist even though, surprisingly, he had not served in the Cabinet Economic Committee prior to becoming Chancellor in late 1967. As custodian of the Treasury over the next few years, admittedly through a tougher and perhaps needlessly severe regime of retrenchment, Jenkins boosted his reputation as a major public figure in a way highly unusual in the chequered history of British economic policy since the war. He was one of those Prime Ministers we never had. Um, the, the, there was every every suggestion that Jenkins should probably have succeeded Wilson, but it was not to be. His dominance at the Treasury coincided with a major remodelling of the administration. This came at a time when Wilson's own reputation was taking a battering in the media, especially the press. The catalyst was the final acceptance of George Brown's resignation, so often offered as, and, and so frequently rejected in March 1968. Um, George Brown was this kind of rather anarchic heavy drinking um, uh, Labour cabinet minister who seemed to sort of cause anarchy wherever he went and was constantly at odds with Wilson, um, desperate to succeed him um, and yet um, kind of always unlikely to. The Cassus Belli was, was the decision by Wilson Jenkins and Peter Shaw to close the London, London stock market without consulting Brown. This relieved Wilson of an impulsive and difficult, if, some, uh, if in some ways inspirational, minister. His successor at the Foreign Office was Michael Stewart, who had been there before. Uh, meanwhile, James Callaghan at the Home Office began to repair a reputation somewhat dented by his difficult three years as Chancellor, but much of the energy of the government clearly lay elsewhere. Anthony Crossland, 
Another ex-Gatesgalite on the right of the party became the Secretary of State in charge of trade and industry and was in clear command of economic matters um, in partnership with Roy Jenkins. It marked, among other things, the final triumph of the Treasury over the concept of any Department of Economic Affairs. The Department of Economic Affairs was uh, an innovation set up by Wilson um, in 1964 um, after the Wilson victory, and it was a, a, a poorly thought through uh, institution. Um, the it, it, it sort of didn't so much take powers from the Treasury as kind of duplicated its role. Um, the Treasury always being uh, of the view that it kind of directed uh, fiscal and uh, monetary policy and thus shaped the nature of the economy. Um, the, um, the Department of Economic Affairs kind of dies on the vine. It's, it's starved out I I initially. Um, and there were stories of um, it being assigned kind of essentially broom cupboards in government ministries. Uh, and being uh, uh, underfunded and, and, and marginalised, as is often the way in Whitehall when a, a, a minister's innovation does not meet with um, civil service approval. Another thing worth briefly depacking here or unpacking is this term Gatesgalite, uh, what it means. And it was um, a reference to Hugh Gatesgall, um, who had uh, was on the uh, right of the Labour Party, who was uh, one of Labour's last chancellors um, before the uh, defeat of the first Labour government, first post-war Labour government in 1951, and who had always kind of clashed with the left particularly with Nye Bevin the you know founding figure of the uh, NHS um, they the the right of the Labour Party is is probably really called the shots in the Labour Party for for most of the party's um, history um, it is a party it, it is a kind of like a tendency in the party that um, via, that doesn't dismiss the value of things like a, a welfare state, but is more likely to veer towards uh, austerity um, when required, more light or, you know, when required is a very debatable concept, but more likely um, to um, veer towards uh, issues of, uh, you know, positions on, on national security, NATO, um, of Atlanticism and synchronising foreign policy with the United States of America than figures like Nye Bevin, later on Michael Foote, um, Tony Benn, th th those sorts of individuals. Um, and the they were in some ways the kind of like the heyday of um, that tendency in the party was during the Second World War and um, the kind of the emergent the, the early Cold War when Labour could establish itself essentially as a kind of a party of state as a party that that could be trusted with things like national security and I say by the way by when I say trusted trusted by um, the established elites in, in Great Britain who um, almost immediately, almost from kind of Ramsay MacDonald's government onwards had felt that he had kind of successfully tamed the Labour Party which is a, a, a fair comment really. 
So gate scholites were those on the the right of the Labour Party who um, followed um, Hugh Gateskill. Hugh Gateskill died in 1963. Uh, many uh, many conspiracy theories swirl around this, but uh, died really of, of natural causes, um, and would have no doubt been uh, a, a, a future British Prime Minister had he lived. Um, the ten the, the Gates Gullite tendency um, was kind of it had its ultimate expression under Anthony Crossland who wrote a book called The Future of Socialism and that became almost like a, a blueprint of new labour in the, the 1990s. So um, to balance these right-wing advances in typical careful Wilsonian manner two old Bevanites also progressed in notable fashion. Richard Crossman became Secretary of State in charge of social services, while Mrs Barbara Castle, the only woman cabinet minister, made spectacular rise as Secretary for Employment and Productivity in charge of key sensitive negotiations with the TUC, the Trades Union Congress, of which we'll talk about more, on incomes policy. In the other changes, uh, Edward Short went to education and George Thomas to the Welsh office. Cledman Hughes went to agriculture and Patrick Gordon Walker left the government altogether. Significantly, Dennis Healy, the Minister of Defence and, and one of the clear ministerial successors since 1964, was not promoted. But he had publicly disagreed with the Prime Minister both over cuts in defence expenditure and over arms sales to South Africa, which Healy at that time supported. Healy was that part of the Labour tradition that was uh, hawkish, um, that um, viewed uh, the uh, what remained of the British Empire and Britain's kind of overseas imperial role as still serving some important uh, good. It's this weird idea that people have about the post-war Labour Party that it was somehow not an imperialist party the wealth uh, the you know much of the kind of wealth invested in britain as a result of the the welfare state came from um, britain's uh, control of uh, malayan rubber um, and in the uh, the 1960s as defense secretary uh, healy was uh, very keen on uh, waging war from borneo into indonesia um so in the internal in internal party terms with men like peter shaw moving up in the administration the government shifted marginally to the left with these changes so far as these factors had any meaning in the period of incessant financial crisis in which the government operated but the dominant feature of all was the prob uh, was probably the continuing pressure on wilson's personal standing with failure on the economy Europe and Rhodesia sagging support in the polls and a mood of almost psychotic apprehension throughout the party and the administration. So again, let's unpack a couple of things there. So um, obviously we know that there's been this kind of mounting economic crisis in Britain from the 1960s onwards. Um, there was this post-war consumer boom which isn't so much a product of Britain's uh, expanding economy, but an expanding world economy. Um, led by America um, in the 1950s and 1960s that everyone kind of benefits from, or at least the, most of the first world nations do. And this is starting to slow down by the late 1960s. Um, and br many of Britain's kind of structural problems are, are still there. 
On the subject of Europe, well, the British had had the opportunity in um, the late 1940s um, to join the uh, European um, Coal and Steel Pact um, and and failed to do so. So it's the, the, it was a Labour government that re- rejected this. The British uh, applied several times to join the European Economic Community. Um, under Macmillan, they were rejected, uh, and also under Wilson. Um, de Gaulle um, took kind of great and perverse delight in saying no to Great Britain, not wanting an Anglophone, uh, an Anglophone voice uh, and British power within the uh, the community um the the british mother's day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones blue nile has something she'll adore need it fast most items can ship overnight plus enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I've become pretty convinced by the mid-1960s that this was essential for various British governments, shall we say, and um, civil servants. And opinion formers have become pretty convinced by the mid 1960s that this was essential for their um, economic survival, as um, the last remnants of the empire um, drifted away, and um, Britain's world role and world power went into steep decline. And yet, it took until uh, Ted Heath in 1973, a further five years later, for Britain to gain admission. Um, and the question of Rhodesia, um, once again, if you go back in this podcast um, to listen to the interview I had with James McManus, that's all the way back in August, so it's quite a few episodes ago, August last year. Um, you'll hear an interview and a, a, a much longer conversation about uh, Britain's role and in Rhodesia uh, and the attempts by Britain to um, give Rhodesia independence, the uh, defiance by the white minority um, uh, colonists there. Uh, and the, the the war that follows 
with the majority uh, black population, uh, a war which is ultimately resolved um, in the late 1970s um, with the victory of Robert Mugabe. So anyway, listen to the interview with James McManus. It's a particularly good one. In this new ascendant position, Jenkins began to impose restrictions of a kind not experienced since the grim days of the Korean War. Following a rise in, uh, in bank rate, uh, the, the interest rate, to 8% at the end of 1967, Jenkins' budget of March 1968 rained blows on the consumer and the industry alike. In all, $923 million would be taken out of the economy in a full financial year, which doesn't sound like a lot now, but it certainly was then, including $163 million from purchase tax in a full, um, and $152 million from select employment tax, and higher duties on motor licences, petrol, cigarettes, betting and drink, the, the, the British population's favourite things. Um, there would also be an exceptional one-year levy on unearned incomes. Now that's interesting. This is the sort of thing that is an anathema to British governments now, the taxing of wealth. But in the mid-1960s there is a sense that taxing wealth is the right thing to do and it's also, it also makes a, sen a sensible thing to do. Total priority um, was to be given to the balance of payments. Jenkins stated that it, uh, stating it as his objective that a balance of 500 million would be achieved as soon as possible to take advantage of the recent devaluation of the pound. There were commentators who praised the draconian methods he was proposing in order to achieve this object. Peter Jay in the Times declared, with perhaps misplaced euphoria, that the Chancellor had risen fully and magnificently to the occasion. Others soberly noted that the cost of living would probably rise by one shilling in the pound and that this depressing effect on domestic demand would mean an end, uh, end to the promises that Labour could in any way expand the nation's economic growth. So here, again, here is the, um, the problem. Because of Britain's uncompetitive industries, because Britain becomes a net importer, um, Britain's balance of payments, the amount of money coming into the country versus the amount of money coming out, going out of the country um, is negative. So Britain is more money is going overseas than is, than is being brought in through, through exports. And so Jenkins' strategy is austerity to simply suck cash out of the economy, which isn't a particularly kind of elegant strategy. But it certainly it's, it slows down consumer demand. Um, it doesn't do anything to deal with the, the long-term effects of um, sluggish industries. And here you kind of reach uh, an economic crossroads where you get two alternative, alternative visions which over the next 20 years compete with one another. Um, the latter of the two uh, prevailing, the, the first being the, the Tony Benn uh, vision of uh, state intervention to help struggling industries and edible costs to maintain jobs. Um, Ben's kind of Ben, who actually was uh, a believer in innovation, he loved kind of gadgets and technology, and uh, um, Britain's kind of makers, and so that is a fundamentally good thing. Um, thought that the, the Labour commitment to full employment was a kind of a sacred pledge that, that should not be broken. And even if that meant 
you subsidise uncompetitive industries, well, so be it. It sort of it kind of doesn't really matter how fam- how British workers get fed, um, as long as as they do. And I actually don't think that Tony Benn was really proposing allowing industry to be inefficient. He thought by subsidising it and by the government investing in industry, you actually make it better and more efficient. Controversial argument and sort of never actually really tried. Um, the vision that prevails from 1979 onwards is Margaret Thatcher's of um, allowing markets to sweep away businesses that are are not competitive and allowing um, businesses that are competitive to prevail. Um, and you know th- this is this is, is in some ways at odds with the other part of kind of Thatcher's ethos and worldview which is about flying the flag for Britain about patriotism um, the you know economic liberalism that simply uh, allows markets to operate as they in theory do and very often we're not even talking about the operation of markets we're talking about kind of concentrations of capital doing what it what they want which is just not the same thing these um, very these constant you know these conditions very rarely create the outcomes that nationalists and patriots want uh, and certainly by the mid 1980s um, the uh, revival of British industry that Margaret Thatcher had hoped for certainly hasn't happened in fact um, it could easily be argued that she sort of finishes it off and that post post that the post Thatcherist world is a kind of a, a deindustrialized one. Certainly, British manufacturing doesn't come back as a result of Thatcherism in the nineteen eighties. The um, Jenkins Stern regimen um, continued. Indirect taxes were raised by ten percent through the regulator, and the high, higher purchase controls were tightened still further. Currency restrictions largely abolished foreign holidays for sections of the population, so preventing people from taking money out of the country, and high purchase controls, obviously, were the um, controls on consumer credit. He was slowing down spending and making sure that pounds stayed in Britain. At the end of the year, the benefits alleged to accrue from devaluation still had not materialised. Indeed, there was a renewed talk at that, um, um, that autumn of a further balance of payments crisis. A government committee, um, which featured Wilson, Jenkins, Crossland, Shaw and Castle, um, prepared Plan Brutus, a contingency scheme for yet another devaluation accompanied by, an Im- um, by import and exchange controls and further massive deflation. So more and more austerity. There was still no real sign of a restructuring of the economy and the diversion of resources from private consumption to exports uh, and industrial investment was still not apparent. The capital account showed signs of improvement but with a continued rise in the import bill. The visible trade balance continued to deteriorate. Economists confidently forecast an, um, another year of total economic stagnation in 1969. In some ways, it could be argued that all what was happening here with austerity and uh, the measures that Jenkins was imp- imposing on Britain is that you know Britain is 
being revealed to be a poorer country than was previously thought. You know, essentially an economic truth is being revealed. But that in itself doesn't really win elections. People don't want economic truths. They want uh, abundance and good times and, and that sort of thing. Um, but it, it certainly is an indicator of Britain's diminishing circumstances uh, in the 1960s. Um, the uh, thing that we will see, and I'll do this on on, on the next of these uh, podcasts, it's probably worth doing a, a two-parter, is that economic crisis and stagnation would be the catalyst to labour disputes. And throughout the last part of Wilson's administration and into Heath uh, and then Wilson's second administration and then Callaghan, the, the, the country's fundamental problem um, as was seen by the uh, the tabloid press and the broadsheet press, was that of um, industrial relations. And one could argue that Margaret Thatcher's entire mandate in the 1980s was to uh, break the power of Britain's trade unions uh, and to uh, fundamentally change uh, the way that uh, Britain's labour force functioned. In this, she was successful, but in, in very little else. But anyway, I'm going to finish there. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. And thanks, everyone. I had some really, really good feedback, some really, really positive feedback from um, last week's podcast. Uh, ruffled some feathers as inevitably it was going to. But you, you can't hope in life to go around pleasing everybody, can you? Um, so thanks for everyone's support. And um, there'll be an incredible podcast coming next week. I'm interviewing the brilliant academic Lauren Lesabe Shepherd uh, from the University of New Orleans, who has uh, a new book about the campus culture wars in America during the 1960s looking at the ascendancy not of the, uh, the, the the radical student movement but of their their nemes their nemesi nemeses um, the uh, the kind of the, the the growth of campus conservatism um, and its impact on the development of politics in America for decades afterwards so check that out anyway all the best thanks very much everyone and goodbye are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns.